and, uh, and invest in something that uh, will have eternal uh, benefits. Okay, checking the time. Here we go. This is, uh, this is week number three of our generation series. I've been sharing each week about uh, the generations. And um, let me just jump into this one, generations number three. I'm calling this one the value of each generation. And um, I'm somewhat inspired or quite a bit inspired by last week I, I did something I'd never done before. I went to the uh, Nash or no, Provincial Pro-Life, uh, Saskatchewan Pro-Life Convention Banquet. I've never done that before, and uh, it, was, it was quite good, some good uh, inspiring thoughts there, and uh, uh, to be honest, I've never preached a sermon that was like a pro-life sermon, so I, I thought, well, if I do talk about this topic, I'll be dipping my toes in the water for the first time, um, but as I was there, I kept hearing people talk about strategies and ideas and, and concepts, and it was really good, really helpful, uh, but I thought, you know what, for people who are still getting acclimatized to this idea of what do we do about uh, the life of the unborn, probably what you, you need from your pastor is you need scripture more. You need scripture more than strategies. And that's where I'm going to go today is to talk about scripture more than strategies. And, and I believe this does obviously relate to our series. It, it relates to our generation. So let me just tell you a little bit. Let me, and then we'll just jump in. There's just a lot of scripture today that I think are going to help. Uh, guide our thinking and understanding and what the Bible says about this topic. So one of the little tidbits of information that sort of shocked me when I first heard it was uh, I had I'd heard it and then I didn't believe it, so I double-checked it online. In fact, I double-checked it from sources that were sort of uh, pro-life and then the other side's called pro-choice. I, I thought I'd, I'd check it from both sources and I found out that both sides actually uh, say that this is true that there's three countries in the world that don't have an abortion law. Every, every country in the, lo- in the world has an abortion law, but there's three countries that don't. Uh, North Korea doesn't have an abortion law. Uh, China doesn't have an abortion law, although they have a, one little sort of uh, supplemental thing that they're doing now. Because they had so much abortion happening under their one-child policy for many years, probably early 70s until just recently, you could only have one child the majority of the country could only have one child. So there was a lot of sex-selective abortions. And to put it in its clearest terms, a lot of baby girls were aborted in, because if you could only have one child in that culture, boys were preferred. And this is a really massive social experiment that actually went on. Uh, the ramifications, I don't think we're, we fully, we haven't realized them yet. Uh, some people estimate that by 2020, that's three years from now, there'll be as many as 35 million more men than there will be women in China. That's a Canada worth, like we're 35 million, right? That's a Canada worth of bachelors who probably won't have a chance to be married unless they import a wife from another country and most of them are poor and they won't have that opportunity. So I don't know what you do with 35 million uh, bachelors, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be trite if Canada was only bachelors. I think it'd be fun for a weekend. <laughs> I mean, there'd be a lot of street racing. We'd wreck all the cars. Uh, and then we'd catch a cold and we'd all die because there's no one, <laughs> there'd be no one to save us. Because our colds are worse. I mean, uh, seriously, they are, they are worse. <laughs> 
Anyhow, I, I don't mean to make too much light of it, but, you know, this is a sober subject. So, um, Anyhow, so this, it's a very interesting thing to see what's happening around the world. So lots of countries have laws about abortion, and, and they have different restrictions. They, uh, um, who has to give permission for an abortion to happen is one of the restrictions. Or under what conditions can an abortion happen? Uh, one of the most common restrictions that you can sort of measure things by is at what point in a pregnancy can an abortion happen? Uh, so, for example, if you go to Europe, like if you go to Germany, uh, an abortion can happen generally up to about 12 to 14 weeks into the pregnancy, so first trimester. Um, if you go to uh, many similar countries around there, uh, it'll be the same. You look at uh, Netherlands, I think it's the same. Denmark's the same. Uh, I think France is the same. There's quite a few countries in there where it's sort of 12 to 14 weeks is the limit after that point. Uh, it's very rare to have an abortion after that point. It's just really first trimester. Um, I think Sweden, who is sort of held up as the socialist example of what everyone hopes to be like someday, they go all the way to 18 weeks. And uh, so that's surprising maybe to you because Europe is more conservative about abortion than North America is. Uh, the United States, you'll see ranges from uh, Texas, which you'd think would be much more conservative than Europe, is actually not. They, they go to 20 weeks. And uh, then a lot of uh, states will go to, to what they call the, the time of viability. In other words, when the baby could live outside the womb. So that's like 23, 24 weeks. And there are, I think, seven states at current count that go all the way to the end of the pregnancy. And that's what uh, we find in Canada. In Canada, we don't actually have a law about abortion. Uh, it's treated similarly to any medical procedure, so if you were to take out uh, uh, your appendix, there'd be the, the legislation that surrounds taking out your appendix is basically just the guidelines for safe medical practice, right? And abortion, we, we had a law until about 1991, it was thrown out by the courts and the, and the government uh, tried to put a law back in and it actually passed the Houses of Parliament and then it got stalled in the Senate, it, there was actually a tie vote and then no political people have ever touched it since. So we don't have a law. So sometimes you might even see this. Uh, there was, a, a little while ago, there was a kerfuffle here in Moose Jaw. Not a kerfuffle, but there's a bit of a information protest, some signs and stuff like that saying, we need a law. And I, I sort of wondered, what's that about? What do you mean we need a law? Well, actually, Canada doesn't have a law. And aside from China and North Korea, we're the only country in the world that has no restrictions on abortion. Uh, we just, it's abortion at any time up until uh, the very last, you know, basically the last minute almost. Uh, so, so some people are saying, you know what, uh, we might not agree on what should be allowed for abortion, but we, at least we should have a law. At least we should have some sort of restriction. At least we should be like the Americans who have some sort of restriction, or maybe like the Europeans who are actually much more conservative and more restrictive than we are. But Canada is in the very unique situation in that we, we share with China and North Korea. That shocked me when I heard that fact. I had to double check it, but it appears to be, uh, appears to be true. Um, and one of the other things I'd maybe share is I learned uh, that being pro-life is not just about trying to limit abortion. Being pro-life is so much uh, more than that. I think one of the common criticisms that's made about people who are pro-life is that they are not actually pro-life, they're just simply anti-abortion. Right, that they want to stop abortions from happening, but then after that baby is born, that they don't care. 
whether that baby lives in poverty or that mother uh, is ostracized in her community or that that becomes, you know, that, that's your problem. Now we, we made sure that the baby lived. And so that's one of the common criticisms that I think is put out there. I don't think it's, I may, there may be a few people like that, but I think all the people I met in my engagement with the pro-life community, that that's not true. In fact, that they are very thoroughly pro-life, that they actually have a holistic and a whole life view of, uh, of looking for life to flourish. Uh, one of the phrases I encountered was, uh, from the womb to the tomb, that to be truly pro-life, it's not just about what happens to a baby in the womb, but it's actually about what happens through all of life. And I think I, I really resonated with that. I thought, you know, to really um, endorse a culture of life you really want it to be holistic. You want it to cover everything. You don't want it to just be targeted towards one segment of, of, of a person's life, but their entire life. So let me get to some scriptures here. Let me get to some scriptures here. Um, so why, how do people come to, to seeing themselves as being pro-life and, and advocating so much for the baby in the womb? Well, I think some of these scriptures might uh, be some of the foundational ones. Uh, Genesis 1.27 and I'll just apologize in advance to the PowerPoint people back there because I gave you a list of scriptures I since have added to it and I rearranged them. I just made it as difficult to follow me as possible this morning. So uh, you, you get a pass for every time you miss a, a scripture because I made it very hard. Uh, but the first ones might hopefully be in order. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay? And then Genesis 9, 6. We'll read this one partnered with that. It says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. So why is it important not to... Why, why is some of the foundational things around uh, why it's important to really consider the life of a child in the womb is that we are created in the image of God. Uh, we're set apart from animals. We're not the same as they are. Uh, there's a special way in which God has created us in his image. And so as image bearers of God, hopefully we see that in each other. Hopefully that when you encounter any human being as a Christian, you, have maybe, uh, you maybe have a certain level of, well, they're a human being, but you also have this other level where you said, created in the image of God. They're an image bearer of God. No, whether they're a follower of Christ or not, they've been created in the image of God. Whether sin ravages their whole life or not, you can't get away from the fingerprints that are already there. They're made in the image of God. They're created by God. And so that uh, really, truly puts value and worth on each individual. How about this? Psalms 139, verse 13. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So obviously, it's, you know, you think maybe the Bible wouldn't talk about what happens before birth, that that wouldn't be a big deal. But uh, the psalmist and different other ones talk about this. Uh, Job talks about it. There's different places. talks about uh, the importance of the concept that God knew us before we emerged from the birth canal. That he knew us in our mother's womb. And then look at Jesus' approach to young and vulnerable lives. Uh, in Mark 10.10, 10, the uh, mothers bring their children to Jesus to bless them. It might have been something they might have done to rabbis at that time or teachers at that time but the disciples shoo them away and uh, when Jesus saw this in Mark 10 14 it says he was indignant he was indignant right you know you see those videos of Jesus and he's just so passive and there's no response he was angry think think about you know Jesus 
cleansing the temple. Well, Jesus was indignant, and he said to them, this is his rebuke, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And here's now after he's blown off. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So we see a little bit of the heart of God through the incarnation, through Jesus. So those are some of the foundational things. God cares about, God makes us in his image. He knew us, in, he knows us in the womb. He knew us in the womb. And uh, his, his care and concern for ones in the culture who might be shoved aside or, or not, uh, uh, not deemed as important or as, or as valuable uh, is, is incredible. He really loves them. So that's sort of the younger end of the generations, right? That's sort of where we begin. We see the that, you know, the young and that, that care. But what if we're going to go pro-life all the way to the other end? Because in Canada, there's not legislation being made about abortion right now, and there hasn't been since 1991, but there is legislation being made about the other end of life, and that is, that is for our older um, generations. Uh, there, a euthanasia law has just recently come in. Uh, it sort of was worse than many people hoped and not as bad as some people feared. It was sort of this law that's come in, but now Canada is, I think, eighth country in the world to have an assisted suicide um, legislation in place. And uh, it seems like, in some ways, it's uh, become a difficulty for a lot of uh, medical personnel, and especially doctors who uh, have people come in, they may be depressed or discouraged, and uh, then the doctors are being really pressured to refer them to someone, even if they are a pro-life doctor, or even if they are a doctor who uh, really takes the oath that they took years ago very seriously to preserve life, they feel this pressure from top down that they need to refer them to someone who will assist them to end their life. And um, so let me look at a few verses on the other end of the scale, okay? So how do we view the elders among us? How do we view the oldest generation among us? Um, and this is... Uh, yeah, let me just share a few verses. I want to start with Jesus on this. Uh, Jesus is uh, giving it to the Pharisees as he often does, right? <laughs> and because they were re religious people who seemed to always totally miss the spirit of what God was doing. And Mark 7, verse 9 is where we're going to go. Mark 7, verse 9. So uh, uh, sorry for jumping around on the PowerPoint. It says, and he continued. So he's really giving it to him. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. The Pharisees had a tendency to add laws to the laws that God had given. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Pretty basic stuff. And anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to, get, put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban. That is, that's a word for it, devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So the specific example Jesus is giving of how they add traditions, uh, extra laws on top of laws, is, that, is this one. Where they say, hey, you know what's happening is that here you've got elderly parents in need, uh, probably financial need, and 
the normal course of life is that your parents cared for you all the way through, and at the end you care for them. That's normal. He says, but you have put these laws in place, and you put these traditions in place, so that people will even come to their parents and say, hey, would have helped you. But you know, I've just dedicated all that money to God. You know, sort of this super religious excuse for helping their parents. And uh, Jesus is not happy. He's not happy about that at all. He's, he's quite uh, disgusted by what they've caused people to do. So I think it's implied in Jesus' words that to take care of your parents, to honor your father and mother in their older years, is, is what we're meant to do. Let me give you a few other sort of reinforcements to that. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4 it says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So there's a widow who's going to care for her. Uh, at this point, they're saying, well, you know, a lot of times people might say, well, the church should care for her. And the instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy is saying, hey, first, her own family should be looking into that. They should be the ones who are repaying their grandparents and parents. This pleases God when you take care of seniors in their older years. Finally, one more. 1 Timothy 5.8, it's just a few more verses later. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, and again, the context is providing for elderly parents, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> Pretty strong language. This is really important. Um, when I was uh, five years of age, my parents decided that we were going to move away from Vancouver. That's where I was born and lived for the first five years of my life. And uh, we lived right in Vancouver. In fact, we owned our own home on Windsor Street in Vancouver. Yes, a detached home in Vancouver. And we sold that home because we were going to move to Manitoba to live next door. The house became available next door to my grandparents. My mom's mom and dad. And so we sold that home in the heart of Vancouver on Windsor Street for $30,000 and moved to Manitoba. There's no debate in our family that that was the single biggest financial mistake we ever made. I've gone online. I did a few months ago. The prices just keep going up and up. But a few months ago, I went online and found out that you can't buy anything on Windsor Street, anything. I mean, even a shack. And this is not a shack. It's, it's a nice house. You can't buy anything on Windsor Street for under $1.3 million. So, we moved to Manitoba to live next door to Grandpa and Grandma. How much are grandparents worth? Could I go on Kijiji and buy a set for $1.3 million? I think if you ask my brothers and sister, I've got five brothers, one sister, if you think you've asked them, what, what was that decision, even though it was the worst financial decision we made, what was, it, what was the sum total of it? I think we would say that's the best relational decision we ever made. That we traded, we didn't know it at the time, $1.3 million dollars in order for me to have 22 years of relationship with my grandparents. It was a great exchange. It was an incredibly great exchange. My grandparents were godly. Uh, um, they were a godly couple, very loving, 
living next door meant that we took down the fence. We could run there, you know, anytime we wanted. If we got a spanking, we could run over and complain about it. We'd always get a cookie. Scotch mints were in abundant supply. Werther's Originals, once they caught on to those, replaced the Scotch mints, which was a great improvement. Uh, I, I remember once going to the store and losing the money out of my pocket, $5. I lost it out of my pocket, going and crying to Grandma, and she couldn't see me cry without replacing the $5. And I remember just thinking, grandparents, amazing, wonderful. Fresh cookies, fresh buns. Almost every day, Grandma was baking something. Grandpa was real practical, but also let us explore our wild side. He put a rope swing in the highest tree in his backyard. We used to swing from the top of the shed onto the roof of the house. <laughs> and he approved. <laughs> it's a great investment. Great investment. This is what we run into, and this is, I think, what going to be the issue going forward with how we honor the oldest generation, is how much money factors into that. Because I think as you look at euthanasia coming into Canada, and you also look at uh, this, the wealth that sometimes is in the older generation. By the way, my parents, because of their financial decision, won't be, <laughs> there's not a lot of wealth coming down. And once you divide it, anything seven ways is not that big anyhow. I, the flip side of that is if there's a bill and you divide it seven ways, it's not that bad, right? So I'm, I'm hoping the IOU at, at, at the funeral won't be that big, right? Uh, but I'll tell you something. The good thing about not getting a big inheritance, or maybe not much of an inheritance at all, is that I won't be sitting on a mourner's bench thinking about how I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to be thinking about life and love. And I don't think, I may, I, you know, it's crass to say that. I don't know if people do that, sit on a mourner's bench and think about money. Hopefully not. But our society is money infatuated. We're a very consumeristic society. We're being taught and bombarded all the time to think about money. And the Bible says a lot about money. And it says that there's a danger involved with when, when we, um, instead of valuing God, valuing people, we begin to value money, some twisted things start to happen. Let me give you some of those scriptures. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not some people say for money is the root of all evil. That's not actually what it says. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I would say they pierce themselves and they pierce others with many types of grief when they really begin to love money and make that their sole pursuit. Matthew 6.24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, and you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what does Jesus use as his best example of the two-master struggle that can happen in our lives? He says, you cannot serve both God and money. So it wasn't just a problem today, it was a problem even in the first century in Judea. It was a problem then, this struggle between God and money. You'll, you'll worship one and... Uh, and you'll despise the other. 1 Timothy 6.9 Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now I want to clarify this. I'm, this is not 
poor Steve railing against rich, you know, the one percenters. I, I don't have any, I'm not going there. That's not what I, that's not even what I believe. What I'm talking about here is that making the desire to get rich your ultimate goal. Something is going to uh, be your pursuit that swats away the other things. And if it's money, if your pursuit is to be rich, and you won't compromise that in any which way, it's your one and only number one pursuit. Uh, it says you will, it will, it's a trap, and you'll, it'll lead you into many foolish and harmful desires. It will plunge people into ruin and destruction. You say, well, I, no, I'll be rich. Uh, there's lots of ways for your life to be ruined even when you're rich. There's lots of ways for destruction to enter into your life even when uh, you have financial means. In fact, there's really two plans for every person's life. For the baby in the womb, for the elderly one who's looking at the end of life, for everyone in between. There's two plans for people's lives. John 10.10 spells it out really clearly. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So look at God's plan. He wants to give us life. It's a pro-life statement. He wants to give us life and a full life, an abundant life. Life to the full, right to the gills. But there's another plan for our life. The thief comes to steal, only to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what we see happening when we get money in the wrong place. Money is okay servant, but it's a terrible master. It leads us down a dark path and all sorts of damage comes out of that. And money plays a role in, when we, in what we're talking about. It plays a role in how we view life, how we view the life in the womb. It plays a role in how we view uh, the life of our elderly. Uh, right now, the talk is all about the right to die. I wonder if that might switch someday to the obligation to die. I hope not. I hope not. I hope that the, the dignity and the respect that we show for both ends of the spectrums and everyone in between is going to be the same. That we'll value people above possessions. Let me give you one other area where I think th this comes into play. So we talk about the beginning of life, we talk about the end of life. Let's talk about the middle of life and the, the weak and the vulnerable. So you can have weak and vulnerable at the beginning, weak and vulnerable at the end. Uh, but listen to this, uh, or I'll share these verses in a second. Um, what about those who are maybe weak and vulnerable all through their lives? And this could be uh, physically, through disability. This could be mentally, um, some sort of mental sickness, depression. What's our, what's our response to them? Ephesians 4.2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. You know, when you read be patient, you can't just skim past it quickly. Well, you want to, but you know that being patient is hard. If you've ever been uh, in relationship with somebody who struggles, or their life is marked by struggle, you know that being patient, bearing with one another in love, is not a trite statement. It's not something you just say easily. Oh yeah, I'll do that. 
you know that that's the path of character, that's the path of commitment, that's the path of self-denial, of loving someone else above yourself. Ephesians, um, Ephesians 4.2 tells us that. So whether it's at the beginning of life, the end of life, or those in the middle, do we value all life? Do we value all life? Now, I want to watch, I want to watch a, a, a quick clip, video clip here with you guys. And then we're gonna, I'm going to come back and talk about uh, God's healing in these areas. Because if if at this point in the message you're feeling a load of guilt or something like that, let's, let's talk about that in a moment. Okay? But what we're going to watch is we're going to watch a video. Um, Grammy Award winner, winning rapper Lecrae. I don't know. Anyone ever heard of him? Any, oh, some people have. Okay. Is going to talk to a couple pastors about his past. Okay? So let's roll that video. I was in school and acting a fool. My soul got saved, my debt had been paid, but still I kept running off with my crew. Sex on my brain and death in my veins. I had a main thing, we stayed up to two, smoking. Waking and baking, we naked. My body was loving it, soul was hating it. And time and time after time, our bodies grew close. The girl was so fine. She had a heart, we heard a heartbeat that wasn't hers or mine. The miracle of life had started inside. Ignored the warning signs, suppressed that truth I felt inside. I was just having fun with this. I'm too young for this. I'm thinking me, myself, and I. Should I sacrifice this life to keep my vanity and live nice? But she loves and trusts me so much that whatever I say, she'll probably oblige. But I was too selfish with my time. Scared my dreams were not gonna survive. So I dropped her off at that clinic. That day a part of us died. So, yes. And it's true. It's a true story, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's kind of all, you know, uh, young man um, trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life. Um, hadn't finished school. Um, and, and I had met the Lord, but um, just was still trying to get my footing in terms of walking with Jesus. And, uh, and you know, was, I mean, I could tell all kind of, there's so much that happened. Like, I literally was in the middle of that relationship, I was feeling the conviction. I felt like God was giving me opportunities to, you know, escape. And, um, you know, we're doing drugs, we're engaged in, in uh, you know, sexual activity consistently. And, um, and I really, at that time, I thought that I, I had believed in urban myth that I had, con if you consume enough drugs, you will be sterile. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, uh, um, thought that, oh, we'll, we'll never get pregnant because, you know, I was my ignorance at the time. Um, and um, I remember we were both working at a, uh, <clears throat> at a call center and we went out for our smoke break and, um, and she hesitated to smoke the cigarette and I was just kind of like, what, you know, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And that's when she let me inform me, yeah, that she was pregnant. And so, uh, you know, it was a, it was a really, um, I will say I was very, had it not been for the spirit of who I was suppressing, you know, the conviction of the spirit with drugs and alcohol, um, I, don't, I don't know if I would have felt anything. You know, I was so callous and so hard-hearted um, that it was almost second nature to say, oh, we, we want to get an abortion. And uh, she was actually wrestling with the idea. And, um, and, I, and I did, I, I, could, I could sense the Lord um, 
impressing upon me like, hey, not okay. Um, but I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so self-centered at this point in time and not God-centered at all that it was just kind of like, let me shut in that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, and it wasn't even a question. It was just more of me convincing her that this was the right thing to do. Um, and there's a lot I could, you know, I could, yeah. you know. Yeah, you, we were talking a few minutes ago and the part that was so moving to me was that evidently there are stages along the way for getting breakthroughs about this or getting over it where where you were going through some old pictures or something mm-hmm. come to terms with your wife mm-hmm. what yeah uh, what, what what happened there that that uh, that needed to happen in order for you to move forward yeah so after um after the abortion i really pretty much shut it out of my mind and really you know um I mean, literally to the point where, I mean, it's shameful, but, um, you know, I ignored all her calls. I quit dealing with her altogether. Um, the last time I saw her, I remember her being curled up on her bed crying. And um, and I just was, I kind of pushed all of it out of my mind. And what I kept uh, were pictures of her. And and I, and I and hindsight's 2020, I did it as a memorial in some senses. But, um, you know, after years down the line, I was going through premarital and um, I was getting rid of pictures of all my ex-girlfriends and whatnot to say my mind and my heart is focused on this woman here and I don't need any reminders of anything. And, um, and I came across her picture and I didn't, I couldn't throw it away. Mm. And, um, and my wife was like, just throw it in the trash. Uh, mm. And I just broke down, mm. you know, out of, mm. I was like, what in the world? The yeah, it just literally broke. Um, the guilt and the remorse and the shame of it all. And, uh, and I think that was actually the beginning of the healing process for me. So, uh, I remember back in 02. Test, test, there, sir. Thanks, guys. It's tricky being pro-life. You got babies, you got mothers, you got fathers. You got pressures. I read an article where it said that, and it was trying to delve in to understand uh, the thinking and the and the and the feelings of a woman that goes through to have an abortion, and um, especially when it re- regards to other options. Uh, the one. Uh, the article was going on to say that, you know, why not adoption? Why, doesn't, why is there not a culture of adoption anymore in, uh, in North America? Why does that seem to have changed? What, what's changed about that? Uh, although there are tons of families that are looking to adopt, especially here in Saskatchewan. I know lots of families personally that are looking to adopt. Uh, but why not adoption? And the, the conclusion was, of the article was, after they'd interviewed a lot of women, they said, it's, it's, it's become like, they view adoption like death. They view adoption actually like two deaths. One, that it's the death of all their dreams and hopes. 
all the things that they wanted for their future. That, that's a death, that's the first death. But the second death is that they don't view the adoption for the child in a positive light. They view that that's the death of their positive future. And so they actually choose abortion over, over those two. It's, it was enlightening for me. It was hard to get my head around at first. They choose this death over these other two deaths. Does that make sense? It made me really think, as a church, we need to excel. We need to excel in having a spirit of adoption within us. Not just to say, let's change laws, let's get things different in our country. It's, we have to, again, you'll hear this again and again. It comes down to what's in our heart. Do we have a spirit of life within us? Do we, do we run towards messy situations? Do we adopt people into our sphere of, of influence so that they could possibly open their hearts to hope? To hope that something could be different. I talked to a pastor this week. His name was Tim. Great pastor from Yorkton. He said he and his wife, God put it on their heart to start exploring adoption a few years ago. And some of you know our adoption story. So it was neat. We are sharing stories. And they haven't adopted yet. But they said we, we met this young girl who was scared and was going to have an abortion. And we sat down with her and we said, we will adopt your child. We, just please. And they met with her and they had this whole conversation. And in the end, the young girl decided not to have the abortion, and she decided to keep her child. And uh, they were really, you know, happy for the outcome. They're happy for the outcome. They, they were, but they were willing to put their lives on the line to change their trajectory for the future. I love the spirit of adoption I see rising up in this church. I love how uh, people have, especially with newcomers coming from other countries to Moose Jaw, and so many families have adopted... <laughs> Not a baby, but, but a whole family and engaged with them. And that takes time and it takes effort and sometimes more than you want to give. And you know that. Because we're Canadians, we're individualistic and they happen to be communal. <laughs> and when those two cultures come together, whoo, boy, do we get drained, right? Because we like manageable relationships. Good for you. Good for you for entering into that. I love to see, I love when I see uh, our empty nesters in our church and our newly retired ones in our church taking on new relationships, doing spiritual adoption, ones who are not their own kids, younger people coming into their lives. I love the engagement we have, lunches with Joe's Place. What an incredible blessing they are to our church and an incredible blessing both ways as people engage and have pizza and other foods with these guys. It's amazing. But God has to call us. He has to, he has to, he, he's the ultimate adopter. <laughs> it's the spirit of adoption that he has within himself, that he's adopted us spiritually into his family, that needs to be replicated in greater and greater measure in our hearts so that we become a hopeful people. A hopeful people, so that when people come to the difficult situations, those difficult choices, they say, you know what? I know the church is going to help me. I know they will bear these burdens with me. I know that they will uh, they'll walk with me. They'll help me find uh, other options that lead to life. Let's pray.
Let's stand and pray. Jesus, I thank you so much uh, that you are, uh, you are the ultimate uh, one who has made the greatest pro-life initiative that we could ever look at, and that's found uh, in John 3.16, that uh, for anyone who'd receive you, for anyone, you'd give them eternal life. It was your desire to enter into our disordered mess of a life and give us eternal life. Abundant life now and eternal life forever. And so, God, you are all for that. And so, Lord, I, 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 we want to build a culture of life around you. Not in our own making, not in our own strategies, not in all those things. We want to really focus around you. You're the life giver. You are our life. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to, we want to look to you. Thank you for initiating with us. And now, Lord, let us in turn initiate with others in your power. Not in our own steam, not only just in our own strength or to our own credit, but let's take who you are to others. Lord, help us with that. We need tremendous help in this area to be able to do these things. These things are not done in our own strength, but they can only be done by you. And so, Lord, use us. May we be effective tools in your hand uh, to bring life to many. We ask that in your name. Amen.